tonight we'll give you back your test papers because we'd like to use them in our lesson uh, study. Uh, they'll be on the table in the back. I hope you remember your number and you can uh, pick it up, bring it with you. I think we've had uh, 23 and four, about, uh, about 27 turned in and maybe three or four of those were visitors. So everybody hadn't turned one in, but if you haven't, bring it anyway tonight and read your own paper uh, because we're going to go through them. Uh, as I mentioned in the class, nobody made a zero, but I think it would be a profitable study just to go through these and sort of associate the answer with the background. With uh, 100 questions, we can't spend much time on each one, but uh, we'll try to just do what we can. <clears throat> This morning I'd like for us to discuss and think together about what I didn't realize seems to be a major problem in the brotherhood. And that is feelings of unresolved guilt in the church. Uh, I've seen some information from questionnaires that have been given to uh, preachers, uh, to, to a congregation, and uh, so I want to talk to you this morning about unresolved guilt in the church. And by unresolved guilt is meant that some Christians can't seem to get rid of their guilty feelings. They can't seem to just enjoy peace of mind. They may feel a deep unworthiness in themselves and a terrible fear of divine wrath. Even though the Prince of Peace said in John 14 and 27, Peace I leave you, my peace give I unto you, or thee. Not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be ye fearful. But there are many who have fear because they can't get, of this, get rid of this feeling of guilt. So we want to look at three C's. The consequences of unresolved guilt, the causes of it, and the cure. Those are the three C's. God has given us all a conscience. That's that faculty that comes with everybody. And it depends upon how it's been taught or trained. But it will respond in two ways. If we do what we've been taught is right, we, our conscience will approve. But if we do that which is, we've been taught is wrong, then it's going to uh, condemn us. It's going to smart. It's going to hurt. And because of our conscience, we can all feel some guilt. But this ability to feel guilt was intended by God for our good and not for our harm. Our conscience is to give us temporary pain, just long enough to get us on the right track. When it's violated, that is. Which, when we respond properly to our conscience, will turn us back in the right direction and then resolve our guilt feelings. But guilt is not always so easily done away with. Some in the church have done what the Bible teaches they need to do, like Acts 2.38. Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When a person obeys the gospel, does God's will, God promises to remit, to forgive, to pardon all of our sins. So if he forgives them, why are we still feeling that guilt? And so they still feel guilty, some folks. They live lives of quiet desperation, and some with little expectation of heaven. That's the sad part about it. And we'll say more about that latter point in just a little bit. So what, to what degree is this problem in the church? We've all heard of Brother Batsel Barrett Baxter, a well-respected Bible teacher and preacher. He said, It is my judgment that a great number of Christians do suffer from heavy guilt feelings. Notice the two things he says. A great number of Christians suffer from heavy guilt feelings. And Brother Baxter has talked with a lot of people in the brotherhood. He's counseled lots of folks, and somehow he comes up with that idea. Well, one of the questionnaires, we're going to look at results from two, but one was sent to 50 preachers. And the question put to them was this, or one of the questions. Do you believe unresolved guilt is a significant problem in the church today? Well, 26 of the 39 preachers responding said yes. Now that's uh, 66 or 67 percent. Two out of every three said yes. To the same question put to a congregation, 70 percent also said yes, some adding very definitely. Even though we know from what the Lord said in Hebrews 8 and 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins I will remember no more. God says, when I forgive your sins, I'll forget them. But somehow, we have a problem ourselves forgiving ourselves and forgetting them. That's what we're talking about, unresolved guilt in the church. Well, why? What are the causes? Well, before we look at the causes, let's notice some of the consequences and then we'll notice the causes and some of the cures. Now, I've got these causes numbered. I think I've got about, I mean consequences. I've got about nine. One consequence of this unrequited guilt or unresolved guilt, it produces a feeling of separation from God and others. Those burdened with guilt cry out, it seems that God's is not there anymore. My prayers just seem empty. Well, we know from 1 John 1 and 7, it's only when we walk in the light that we have fellowship with God and with one another. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. In the blood of Jesus, His Son cleanses us from all sins. Also, there is a feeling of unworthiness to associate with others who appear to be blameless. Now, I can't think of anybody in this congregation fitting this situation, but if you do, we're not blaming you. I just, just don't know you that well, maybe. But I'd like to say this. Anytime any of us need to talk to someone about a guilty feeling, 
The Bible does say in James 5 and 16, confess your faults one to another. That we ought to be receptive. We ought to be able to go to another brother or sister and with all confidentiality uh, discuss whatever the problem might be. But when we are bothered with something, we look upon everybody else, well, they're blameless. You know, they're sinners. They're up here on this pier, and here I am way down here in my sin, and I'm, I'm afraid to talk to them. Well, I'm trying to help us overcome that fear of talking to one another. I read not long ago about a man who was a Christian from early life. And then he committed some sin. We don't know what it was. He didn't even tell his wife what it was. But it was of such a nature that he felt like he just not, he couldn't worship God. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't talk to God. Couldn't be with other Christians. And so he just quit the church. He said, after studying with the brother, he and his wife, he said, I didn't realize that I could be forgiven. Gone through most of his life. Bearing this burden of guilt and not realizing that God was so merciful that he would forgive him. And therefore, there would remain no forgiveness, no way back to God. That was his feeling. He didn't feel that he could go and sit among the holy people, as he put it. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one of the consequences, it, it produces a feeling of separation from God. And from others. And this happens whether the guilt is justified or not. Well, our second consequence. <clears throat> a person who constantly feels guilty will not be all he is capable of being. His mind's preoccupied with his guilt. Rather than with prayer and meditation and doing what he, he needs to be doing. Thirdly, <clears throat> unresolved guilt will produce a habit of constant self-criticism. Guilt makes one feel inferior and unworthy. As we mentioned, you know, everybody else is way up here and here I am down here and I, I'm just blaming myself for any and everything when I have this guilt feeling. And not only does he or she criticize others, I mean himself, but others. He cannot forgive and respect others until he has done the same for himself. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And I'm paraphrasing, love the, the Lord thy God with all of thy being. But a second like unto it is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, if I hate myself, I'm going to hate my neighbor. And so I'm going to have a problem. I'm going to criticize other folks as well as myself. Number five, this feeling does away with all joy in the Christian life. What is done as a Christian is done as a duty rather than as a joy. I, I've just got to do this. I, I'm not going to enjoy it, but I'm going to do it. Well, there's a lot to be said for duty. But it's a regret that we cannot enjoy doing our duty. In the questionnaire that we mentioned, 77% of the preachers felt that more members of the church viewed their Christian life as a duty rather than as a joy. 77% felt that way. We cannot rejoice in the Lord with a guilty conscience, can we? Sixthly, <clears throat> it greatly affects our hope of heaven. And with the decrease in our hope, 
There's also a decrease in our activity and our endurance and our optimism. These preachers that were surveyed estimated that an average of only 52%, that's about half, of the congregations genuinely expected to go to heaven. Now, I'd like to think that 100% of the Christians in this congregation believe they're going to go to heaven. We should. But here is a survey that indicated from their experience that only about 52% genuinely expected to go to heaven. A seventh consequence. A question was asked, do you feel that personal unresolved guilt is one cause of a low level of evangelism on the part of members of the church? And 54% said yes. That's about half too. One will not be anxious to sell Christianity to others when it seems to have been a failure to him. I mean, that's just natural. If it will not resolve my own personal guilt, then I doubt if it's going to resolve anybody else's personal guilt. That's the way we feel. Number eight. With guilt goes fear of God and other kinds of fears. It affects many not only spiritually and eternally, but emotionally and mentally and physically. Neurotics and psychotics, barring any organic involvement, I would say are not sick. They're sinners. If caught and condemned by their, when, when they're caught and condemned by their own conscience. Their breakdown may be actual and involuntary confusion, confession of guilt. We know that guilt and emotional sickness are no strangers to each other. Guilt is responsible for a goodly portion of the physical illness that we see today. David said, King David in Psalm 32 and verse 3, When I declared not my sins... My body wasted away. It's been found that at least 65%, and some would raise it to 75%, of all patients coming to medical doctors or suffering from illness initiated or seriously complicated by psychological problems. And one last consequence we'll mention, that's a drastic consequence. Self-destruction. That's a great problem in the world today, in our society, and across the world. Suicide. Not being able to, to live and to enjoy life. They've got this burden they just can't get rid of. And so, what's the use of living, they feel? Well, what are the causes for an excessive level of unresolved guilt? In the church, we're not just talking about society in general, but in the church. Well, finding the causes, then we can deal with it and try to provide the remedy. Let me give you one. There has been an imbalance in preaching on the grace of God and the wrath of God. In the brotherhood, there's been a reaction to cheap grace, as it is taught in some denominations that has resulted in our almost exclusive emphasis on the wrath and severity of God. And this results in unresolved guilt in the church. Of the 77, of the preachers, 77% of the 
agreed that in the past 50 years, we have emphasized the wrath of God more than the grace of God. One preacher said, In my youth, I never heard a positive sermon on grace. Most sermons on grace are designed to show that grace alone will not save. I preached a lot of sermons like that. That's sort of the negative point of view, is it not? Answers given by members regarding the meaning of grace showed a very limited understanding of it. And so there needs to be, this would be a part of the cure, a proper balance in our preaching and teaching on the grace and the wrath of God. Now, it's true that a sense of sin and the wrath of God must be felt, or, and, and a lot of people are, are not feeling it, and that's why they're not Christians. There are a lot of people in society, they don't feel like they're sinners, and so what? I mean, everybody is, they think, and they think, therefore, everybody's going to go to heaven. Well, that's all wrong thinking. It's true that a sense of sin and the wrath of God must be felt, or conversions, if there are such, will be shallow. And shallow conversions will not last. But when the awareness of the sinfulness of sin has come and the wrath of God against it, one must be careful to make the penitent soul as aware of God's grace as he has become of his wrath. We might say that some who obeyed out of fear have not been lasting conversions either. Well, let's place more of an emphasis upon the grace of God. We cannot earn God's salvation. We cannot merit it. We cannot make enough sacrifices. We cannot obey enough commands just to earn salvation. We need to perhaps uh, use some scriptures and the principles taught therein, like Isaiah 1 and 18. <clears throat> Come now and let us reason together, saith Jehovah of hosts. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now that's a promise from God Almighty. Though our sins, and we're all sinners, make our souls look like scarlet, he says they can be as white as snow because I'll forgive you. And when our souls are as white as snow, we shouldn't have a guilty feeling. Or Romans 5.20 <clears throat> And I'm going to use uh, the Living Bible paraphrase. The Ten Commandments were given so that all could see the extent of their failure to obey God's laws. But the more we see our sinfulness, the more we see God's abounding grace forgiving us. We need to see our sinfulness or we won't seek salvation. But we need to see the, the remedy that God has. And it's through his grace that he provides a remedy. And that's forgiveness. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> well, to be justified by the grace of God <clears throat> means to be declared righteous and not guilty. When we're justified, saved, God says we're righteous. We're not guilty. And we need to get rid of that guilty feeling. 
For Titus 3 and 5, not by works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. One of the Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but, notice that conjunction, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, there are many passages that help us to think about God's grace. And so... This involves preaching and believing on the part of everybody that Jesus Christ crucified is the suitable and sufficient payment and punishment for our sins. That's the point that we're overlooking, I think. It may be that some cannot feel forgiven because they just cannot see faith and baptism as sufficient payment for our sins and their right. Faith and baptism are not the payment. The blood of Christ is the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice acceptable by God. But if our preaching leads people to believe that the major foundation of our salvation is what we do, then their guilt is likely to be unresolved. They know that it's not enough to just to be baptized to get rid of their sins or to earn their sin, uh, sinlessness. And they have not been taught what has been done by the Lord and what is enough. I remember a gentleman who brought his wife to every service. She was very faithful. She couldn't drive. He was not a Christian. He had heard enough gospel sermons, you know, to convert the world. An elder and I visited with him one evening and just talked to him. I mean, why haven't you obeyed the gospel? Well, his answer was, it just doesn't seem like that's enough to do. Just to believe in the Lord and to confess your faith and repent and be baptized to have forgiveness of sins. And so what was he looking at? He wasn't looking at the grace of God. That was enough for God. I'd like to tell you it's a good ending to the story. The man later did obey the gospel. But at that point in his life, he was looking at the wrong thing. Grace seems too simple a solution for our sins. We accept. Now, here's the bottom line. We accept God's grace. We're talking about accepting it. We accept God's grace by what we do. But this is not the foundation of our acceptability by God or with God. Ephesians 2.89 for by grace ye have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. It's all God's doing. We have to respond. Hebrews, I mean Romans 11 and 22 tells us, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Severity toward them that fail, but God's goodness toward thee. If thou continue in his word, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. So, Paul said, stand back and look at the goodness and the severity of God. It's there. He's infinite God. But let's not just look at the wrath and the severity of God. Well, another cause for unresolved guilt has been emphasizing the possibility of apostasy to our neglect to the security that we can have in Jesus Christ. 
a child of God may choose to go back into the world of sin after he's become a Christian. He still has a free will. We have a free will to obey God. We have a free will to turn our backs on God. 1 Corinthians 10 12 says, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There are a number of warnings in the Bible. We need to give heed to these warnings. Hebrews 2, 1 and 3. <clears throat> well, 1, 2 and 3. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard. Lest happily we drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Warnings. But the constant and exclusive emphasis upon these warnings to the neglect of the security provided in Jesus Christ will breed a fear of falling and hopelessness and standing. We know the Bible does not teach once saved, always saved. Once in grace, always in grace. But it does hold out the possibility of remaining always in the good grace of God. Here are some more scriptures. In Jude 24, it speaks about God guarding us from stumbling. Now, this is a eulogy. Now, unto him, that's unto God, who is able to guard you from stumbling and to set you before the presence of his glory without blemish and exceeding joy. Or, 1 Peter 1 and 5, referring to Christians who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation Maybe a guilt, but no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as man can bear. For God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. These are promises that we have from the Lord. On this questionnaire our questionnaires that we've mentioned. And this is the answer that was given by the congregation. There were two expressions that would describe their entrance into heaven. And they were to mark which of these two expressions described them better. That they'll get into heaven by the skin of their teeth or by an abundance of entrance. Three out of four. That's 75% said if they got to heaven, it was going to be by the skin of their teeth. I've talked to folks who said, well, are you saved? I mean, faithful Christians, Bible teachers and preachers, and, and I've heard them say, well, I don't know until I die. I think that's absolutely wrong. And if that's the way some preachers feel, we can see why the congregation is going to feel that way as well. Especially is it odd when this abundant uh, entrance is, is used in the scriptures. In Second Peter 1, we'll start with verse 10, but verse 11 is the one I'm especially interested in. It says, Wherefore, brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now notice, 
But thus shall be richly supplied unto you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The King James uses abundantly. Uh, ASB uses uh, richly. Same idea. Abundant entrance. A rich entrance into the kingdom of God. So why by the skin of my teeth? Unless we've forgotten the grace of God. Maybe we're working out our own salvation. If we're trying to work out our own salvation, we're not going to get in by the skin of our teeth. It's all by the grace of God. Let me give you three illustrations. We're nearly through. A person who dies for his faith has no more a right to heaven than one who does not. You remember Stephen in the Bible, first Christian martyr? We read the folks in the book of Revelation. There were a number of martyrs in the first century. A person who dies for his faith has no more a right to heaven than one who does not because it is not earned. Anybody who goes to heaven is going by the grace of God. Of course, you have to be faithful on our part, but we don't earn it. Second illustration. A person who foregoes or refrains from marriage in order to serve the Lord has no more right to heaven than one who marries because we're not because we're saved by grace and not by our sacrifices the Lord wants us to sacrifice but that's not a basis that's not the foundation of our salvation we all admire the Apostle Paul I mean I admire him I'd like to be more like Paul he was a courageous man he was devoted to the Lord he wanted everybody that was lost to be saved he wanted God to be exalted we admire the life of Paul, but, having said that, Paul's efforts will bring him no closer to salvation than the Christian whose faithful life is much less spectacular. We should strive to be like Paul, but not to act with the feeling that if anyone's saved, I'm going to be because of the sacrifices I've made. That's the wrong motivation, the wrong feeling. Our salvation is dependent upon what God has done for us. We do something to accept it, not to merit it. That's the bottom line. We have to do something to obey the Lord. Hebrews 5 and 9 tells us that Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation to all them who obey him. We have to obey him, but that doesn't take away from God's grace. We do something to accept his grace and the salvation to it but not to merit it. 